Thank you for that introduction. Thank you as well. Scott, I know he's not here, but I want to thank him and the elders of the church for the opportunity to open the Word of God with you. Uh, there are a few things I like to do more, maybe nothing that I like to do more than to open the Word of God with the people of God. Uh, so I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I think there's some in the chairs in front of you. Isn't that right, Adam? Someone nodded? Okay, yeah. So grab a Bible. Most of what I'm going to say today is going to come from Mark chapter 8, and you'll be helped to be able to look right in the text there and see it. I debated with myself as to whether or not I should say this first sentence, but I'm going to say it. I, th I think Mark is my favorite gospel. Debated, because are, are you supposed to say things like that? Are you supposed to <laughs> admit I like Mark a little more than Matthew, Luke, and John? Uh, well, here's why I like Mark, and that's why I'm also really glad to be part of this series. Mark is very direct. I mean, he, he gets right to the point. I love Matthew, Luke, and John, the other biographies of Jesus, because they're so dynamic. They're, they're multi-layered. They're thick. Whereas Mark, and this is what makes Mark stand out in my mind, he gets right to the point. I mean, he's very direct. It's the shortest gospel, and he gets right after it. The action is very fast, moves from one scene to another, and it's all revolving around uh, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What, what, what do we need to know about Jesus, and what has he done? He gets right to that point. And I think that's particularly valuable to us because uh, Jesus is a very popular name. The world over, people recognize the name Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. However, is it as common that we know who he is or what he's about? To have a popular name that people recognize the name of Jesus is one thing, but to actually know something about him is a whole other matter. And Mark is trying to help us get right to the heart of the matter so that you know who we're talking about when we mention the name of Jesus. And this is particularly critical in our age because there are so many other sources other than the Bible from which we can learn about Jesus, allegedly. Let me give you just one example. Oh, in the History Channel, they commonly have documentaries on the origins of Christianity. Where did this thing called the church come from? Well, the answer always revolves around Jesus. And so the question is, who is Jesus? And in one particular episode uh, that I was watching, there was uh, the basic conclusion of the show is, we really don't know anything about Jesus. We, we really don't know anything about him. What we have are stories about him told by people years and years and years later that are basically mythological. Made up stories, that is, Christians traveled around the Greco-Roman world. They told these stories about Jesus, and as they told the story from one person to another, the next person would in turn tell somebody else, and then maybe travel to another city and tell somebody else. And with each telling of the stories of Jesus, what do you think happened? They changed them. They changed the story. And one of the piece of evidences of this, according to this show, is the way things are duplicated in the Bible. In Mark chapter 8, we're about to read about when Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Now, because you're good sermon listeners, you remember, well, didn't we just hear about Jesus feeding 5,000 people? And so what, why do we have this repeat story with subtle, subtly different details? Well, the story goes like this. Where the origin of the story goes, 
uh, comes from, you know, we, we really don't know, but somewhere along the line, Christians began to tell this miracle story of Jesus, that he's able to feed multitudes with just a few loaves and a couple fish. And one person tells the story, and it's 5,000 people. And another person tells the story, and it's 4,000 people. One person tells the story, it was, in, it was in Galilee. Another person tells the story, and it was in some other part of the world, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so the, the form of the story stays the same, because they're all telling the same story, but the details change. And these two stories come to Mark, and he just, he just writes them both in. He just writes them both in. And that's evidence that we really can't get behind the text of the real historical Jesus. He's just lost in this uh, sort of history of myth-making about Jesus that eventually gets written down. And so if you watch shows like that, and I think they're, those, the, I know for a fact, those theories are replicated every year. There's a magazine, Time Magazine has one, Newsweek has one. Every year, Jesus is on the cover of these magazines because Jesus is popular, so Jesus sells. And the content of those stories is very similar. We really don't know who Jesus was. We really don't know what he was about. All we have is stories that people tell about Jesus. And so the real Jesus is lost to our age. And then add to that the fact that that's the theory of the origins of Christianity that are espoused in, I don't want to overstate this, but nearly all of the universities across our country. That the stories, that the true Jesus is lost underneath stories that people made up about Jesus. And so therefore, while Jesus is a very common name, very popular name, we live at a time when people actually know very little about him because people's confidence in the scriptures have been so eroded by these kinds of theories. But you know, that to know who Jesus is is just was just as urgent in Jesus' own day as it is today. In Mark chapter 8, at the very, I'm about to read the passage, but at the very end, you'll notice in verse 17, Jesus asks this question. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then verse 21, he again says, Do you not yet understand? So we see that Jesus is urgent, that people will understand who he is. And the things that he does, like feeding the, the 4,000 or 5,000, are angled so that people will figure out who he is. And that's the point of today's message. That Jesus is disclosing who he is ultimately by making a major historical shift in his ministry. And that he is the one who brings a new epoch, a turning of the ages called the kingdom of God. And he wants you to understand how he does this. That's the point of today's passage. So let's go ahead and read the passage, and then I'll try to show you how that comes out of this passage. So this is Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Mark 8, verse 1. And I'll read through verse 21. In those days... When again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a far way. But his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he answered them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Then he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before the people. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took out the broken pieces of leftovers, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, saying, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve? And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? See, maybe there's a better explanation for why there are two feeding miracles in the Gospel of Mark. Not that these stories are made up, they circulate in different ways, Mark gathers them both and plops them down into his text. But maybe they actually happened. Maybe they actually happened. And they happened with intentionality in a specific way so that the disciples would conclude from them something about Jesus. And what is it that Jesus wants them to conclude? Well, look back at chapter 6. That's where the first feeding miracle occurs. Jump back to chapter 6. I want to just show you a few things. I'll show you just one thing, actually. Well, I'll show you a few things. Chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus says, come away by yourself to a desolate place. And then verse 32. They went away in the boat to a desolate place. Uh, different translations render this the wilderness or a desert place. So this is a very, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the desert. It's, it's the wilderness. It's not farmland. It's not green pasture, okay? He says, come away to this desolate place. They have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus tells them in verse 39 to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, wait a minute. You just told us it was the desert. It was a desolate place. So how can you say there's green grass? What are we supposed to imagine here? A desert, arid, 
wilderness or green pastures. We'll come back to that. But he tells them to sit down on the green grass. And then verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. Everybody had enough to eat from the five loaves and the two fish. And then he instructs his disciples, pick up what's left over. And verse 43, it says, they took up 12 baskets full. 12 baskets full. And as we just read in chapter 8, again, verse 8, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, seven baskets full. So there's a difference in the result. Twelve baskets are left over, and seven baskets are left over. And so Jesus is in the boat in verses uh, 18 and following, and says, how many baskets did we pick up the first time? They say, it was twelve. So how many baskets did we pick up the second time? Seven. And he says, so you see? You get it? You should understand from the, sev- from the twelve and from the seven who I am. Now, why in the world would Jesus think that 12 and 7 would be the key to understanding who he is? Part of the answer to this comes in verses 14 and 15. Look at verses 14 and 15. After these episodes with bread, the disciples forget to bring bread on the boat. These guys seem to be living by the seat of their pants. Everywhere they go, they don't have enough bread. And here they are in the boat, and they don't have enough bread. And Jesus says, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Hmm, interesting. Why is he suddenly talking about the Pharisees? And what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Everywhere else in, the, in, in, the, uh, in Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever we see leaven, of the Pharisees, it means their teachings. It means their teachings. Now, why would he say, so he's saying, watch out for the teaching, the understanding, principally about Jesus and other things, that come from this group of people called the Pharisees. But why would he call it leaven? Do you know anything about leaven? Do you know what leaven is? Leaven is that small, small powdery substance that you put into bread that makes it rise. So it's a, it's a small ingredient but it has a huge effect on the loaf of bread. And that's Jesus' point. A little bit of leaven can go a long way. There's just the smallest amount of teaching that comes from the Pharisees, and you need to watch out. Because if you adopt some of their teachings, it can spread throughout your whole understanding of who I am and influence everything. In other words, Jesus is saying, doctrine really matters. Doctrine really matters. Now, I realize I just used probably the word that kills all sermons. Doctrine. Half of you have now tuned out. I want you to tune back in. Because these are the words of Jesus. Saying, watch out. Where you get your information about me, even if it's just a little bit, can influence greatly everything else you understand about the kingdom. Doctrine is not just for eggheads. It's not just those who are theologically curious or like big books. It's for everybody. You need to know the truths about Jesus, the truths about the kingdom, the truths about your sinfulness, the truths about Jesus' death on the cross, the truth of his resurrection, 
and understand how these things come to bear on your life. Because, and that comes only from one place, Jesus himself. Jesus is the source of who Jesus is. If we look to other sources, whether it's what the college professor says, what's in the magazine, what's on A&E, what's on the History Channel, what's on Facebook or whatever to get our information about Jesus, that's a little bit of leaven that can go a long way in misinforming your understanding about Jesus. And so whether it's the leaven of the Pharisees in his day or the leaven of the culture in our day, watch out. The smallest bit can ruin your whole understanding. Do you know the name R.C. Sproul? Some of you are nodding. Wonderful teacher, passed away recently. Uh, he's the founder of Ligonier Ministry. If you've heard of Ligonier, he's the founder of that. And he tells a story about a, uh, a lady who comes up to him one day after church and says, you know what, Dr. Sproul? There are two kinds of people in our church. There are the people who are loving, and then there are people who like doctrine. <laughs> there are people who are loving, and then there are people who like doctrine. And he is aghast by this statement. Because while it may be your experience... <laughs> that you've talked to some loving people and you've made these general conclusions about those who like to read books, what you've just said is that doctrine and love are mutually exclusive. What, if you get into doctrine, if you get into studying and knowing theology and thinking deeply about the things of God, watch out. It'll make you an unloving person. Conversely, if you want to be a loving person, stay as far away from theology as possible. Well, what is theology? What is doctrine? but the study of the God who is love. The study of the God who creates everything and gives rain and sunshine to the righteous and the unrighteous. His, what is the study of doctrine but the gift of God in uh, Matthew, uh, John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's an understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he gave his son principally on the cross so that anyone who believes in him will never perish but have eternal life in the presence of the loving God. So what is theology but to understand more deeply the love of God for us and therefore equally how we can love one another? Far from damming up the channels of love, theology opens them up. The more we understand God's love for us, the more we will know how to love one another. And so doctrine really matters. But if you don't know Christian doctrine, if you don't know the teachings of the scriptures to inform your worldview, you will be influenced by the culture around you. You will be swept away by the cultural winds and all the fads and false beliefs about Jesus. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. Let me give you one example. We live in an age that greatly devalues history. I said the second word that kills every sermon. History. Some people like history, some people don't. But look, Jesus cares about history. I'm about to get into a little bit more of that right in a minute. Jesus cares deeply about history. But let's just think for our cultural moment. We live in a time that devalues history. That history is not a source of wisdom and that there's nothing we can learn from the past. We are the new people who are pushing into the new future this is just kind of in the air that we breathe these days in the devaluing of history. Well, God created history. He's been at work in history. 
since the dawn of time to the end of time. And we find ourselves in history at this moment. So how can we know where we are and where we're going if we don't know where God has brought us already through history? And so if we simply adopt the attitudes of our culture, in this example, towards history, then we will also devalue what God is trying to communicate to us through his scriptures, which are deeply historical. And Jesus cares deeply for history. Let me show you how. Back to those numbers 7 and 12. Remember them? Where do they come from? Why why does Jesus think those will be the answer to the question that will suddenly uh, uh, give the disciples an epiphany to understand who he is? Well, as we think about the feeding of the 5,000, the miraculous feeding, there are two accounts in Mark, as I just commented. But that's not the first time we've seen a miraculous feeding, is it? Where else do we see a miraculous feeding? In the Exodus. Remember the story of Israel? Remember Israel's history? That Israel, the nation of Israel, they were in bondage, they were enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord calls Moses to come to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may worship me. Pharaoh refuses, and so Pharaoh, I'm sorry, the Lord sends plagues down on Egypt so that Israel can escape. They cross the Red Sea, but lo and behold, just like the disciples, they have no bread. And so they start to grumble, which of course you would too if you found yourself out in the desert with no bread. This is in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, and you can turn there and read it at your own leisure when you have time, Exodus chapter 16. Uh, Let me read to you just a couple of the comments from chapter 16 right now. In Exodus 16, verse 1, listen to this. It says that the people came to a desolate place on the other side of the sea. And then in verse 12, it says, they were all filled with bread and satisfied when the Lord miraculously gave them bread from heaven. So there they are in the wilderness, in the desert, and God gives them bread. And the Psalms remember this. Psalm 78 verse 29 says they all ate and were satisfied. They were all filled. So in Israel's history, there's this moment where they're in the wilderness, they have no bread, God gives them bread, and they all eat, and they're all filled through the miraculous gift of the bread. Well, as Israel's history goes, they eventually come into the land, right? And they're no longer in the wilderness. However, because of their disobedience, they are ejected from the land. This is called the exile. You've probably heard the name Nebuchadnezzar. Leads an army from Babylon who sacks the city, and everybody is ejected from the land. They scatter all over the place. Some go back down to Egypt, some to the north, but most go to Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and the people are gone from the land. They're back in the wilderness. And it's in that context that Ezekiel has a vision of the future. Turn to Ezekiel if you're able, or just listen to this from chapter 34. This is the prophet Ezekiel. He's living in exile, this time of destitution and fear because everybody's been ejected, exiled from the land. And this is what he says. This is Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, 
as he has among his sheep that have been scattered so that I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of cloud of thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and, note this, gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the countries. And I will feed them with good pasture. Some translations say with good, on the good grass. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich green pasture. And they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel is looking at Israel, the nation, and saying, man, we're in a mess. We are scattered all over the place. Because of our disobedience, we've been exiled from the land, and the people are all over, scattered, out in, many of them out in the desert, beyond the desert, in Babylon. And Ezekiel thinks back to Israel's history. There was a time when God fed us miraculously when we came out of Egypt, and he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. And when he does, chapter 34, verse I'm sorry, 36, verse 35 says, the land that was desolate will become like the Garden of Eden. What's the point here? Ezekiel is saying there's coming a day, a great end times moment when the Lord will send someone greater than Moses and rescue us from a terror even greater than Pharaoh in Egypt. There will be a new exodus, a new age, a new world. It will be like we're going back into the Garden of Eden. And the desolate places of the world will be filled with green grass and plenty. And humanity will be restored to the presence of God. Because ultimately, that's the problem. Not that Israel's been kicked out of the land, but that all of us have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This is the ultimate problem with humanity. We were created to enjoy the presence of God and the fellowship with one another. But because of our sinfulness and disobedience to God, we've been ejected, we've been exiled, we've been removed from his presence. That's the story of Adam and Eve. All of us have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And that's why we have strife with one another, strife in our lives, because ultimately we have strife with our creator God. And so the great vision of the Bible is to bring humanity back into the presence of God. To reconcile us to each other and to creation. That thorns and thistles will not come forth from the world, uh, from the ground, but bounty and plenty. As we live in the presence of God, in the fellowship of one another. And Ezekiel is saying, that day is coming. And when it does, it will be like a new exodus. When the people again are brought to feed the way Moses fed them in the wilderness. With that, we come back to Mark chapter 8. Back to Mark chapter 8. And do you remember, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6. Do you remember some of the things we read in Mark chapter 6? The feeding of the 5,000? That they came to a desolate place? But nonetheless, they were told to sit down on the green grasses. And when the people were fed, they picked up 12 baskets full. What's the point of this story for us? 
It's not just so we can look back and say, wow, Jesus, what a great miracle worker. I'm impressed. There is that. But there's more. In picking up the 12 baskets full, Jesus is very intentional here. He's gathering up 12. What does the number 12 represent in the biblical story? It's the number of Israel. It's the number of Israel. Israel had 12 sons. In Israel, there are 12 tribes. You can't miss the symbolism. That when Jesus gathers up 12 baskets full of pieces after feeding this great multitude on the desolate place that actually has grass, Jesus is saying that new world has begun. The new creation has now dawned. I have brought a little taste of that Edenic experience into the here and now. And the desolate place is made grassy and the people who are hungry are fed and the people who were scattered all over the world in Ezekiel's day are now being symbolically, in Jesus' ministry, regathered in picking up the 12 baskets. In other words, it's a, it's a wink, it's a hint that in picking up 12, I'm not just feeding people today, I'm regathering the people of God to come back into the presence of God. But why does he do it again? Why do it again? This is the point today in Mark chapter 8. He does it again. The hint is in chapter 7, verse 32. Nope, verse 31. 731. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Pause. What is the Decapolis? Who knows their Latin? No, that'd be Greek, actually. Who knows their Greek? Deca, polis. Ten cities. The region of the ten cities is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. For you, it'll be over here. East side of the Sea of Galilee. Which means Gentile territory. And this is the key. The second time Jesus feeds the multitude, he's in Gentile territory. And this is why he intentionally picks up not 12, but seven baskets full. Do you see that in verse? I already emphasized it. Verse 8. Seven baskets. Seven baskets. Again, in the biblical story, what does the number seven represent? There are two answers to this. Seven is the number of creation the origin of all things. The whole universe is created in seven days, which means all the people of the world are created in noose, in Adam and Eve, in seven days. But equally, in Acts chapter 13, we're told that Joshua drove out seven nations from the land, meaning the number seven represents the Gentiles. The people outside of the family of Israel. See, Ezekiel has a vision that Israel will be restored in the last days. But Jesus is saying, <clears throat> it's not just Israel. It's actually going to be all of humanity. People who are as far away from Israel as you can imagine. The Gentiles of the world. The Eastern Europeans. The Africans. The North Europeans. The Asians. The South Americans. The Native Americans. Wherever they, the Aborigines. Wherever they are in the world. They were created. Through, originally through Adam and Eve, and they're represented by the number seven in the biblical story. 
That's why Jesus says, he asks them the question in verse 19, when we broke the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets did we take up? Say, 12, Jesus. Okay, great. And then the seven for the 4,000 in Gentile territory. How many baskets of broken pieces did we pick up? Seven. Don't you get it? He expects them now to make the connection. That Ezekiel's vision of a new creation has already dawned. I, King Jesus, have brought the new world. I have brought the presence of God. The renewal of relationships between each other and with God and with the world. Not just for Israel that was in dire straits in the exile, but all humanity. Because all humanity is ultimately exiled from the presence of God. And Jesus' question, don't you understand, is simply this. There's another way of saying, you have to understand who I am on my terms. Maybe, just maybe, more than maybe, certainly. Jesus did these two miracles in reality because he had an intentional message to get across. I want you to conclude things about Israel, and I want you to conclude things about the Gentiles, and I want you to conclude things about what time is it in history. The breaking in of the new age and that you too can be a part of this new Eden-like experience in fellowship and relationship with God and communion with each other. So with all due respect to the History Channel, A&E, popular magazines, and my scholarly friends, the reason there are two feeding events in Mark is not the accidents of history where people were making up myths and couldn't get it right, and so Jesus, Mark just dumps them into the same book. But Jesus actually did these things with intentionality to bring us directly to verse 21. Don't you understand yet that because of the things I'm doing, I'm bringing a new reality, a new creation, where people can have fellowship with God again and fellowship with each other in a renewed world. Now, I understand the world is not entirely renewed. Trees work the same way. Trees always work. Butterflies always do the same thing they've always done. I'm not talking about a full and total new Garden of Eden. That day is coming. That's in the book of Revelation. But a little taste of that has happened. When we gather together, when we hear the word of God, when we believe, when we sing, when we pray, we are in fellowship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as I look out across this room, as far as I can tell, you all look like a bunch of Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. That Jesus has graciously brought into the people of God to have fellowship and a little foretaste of the new Garden of Eden that's coming even now. And principally, ultimately, we can't ignore this. This story of Mark is heading somewhere. It's heading towards the cross and resurrection. You'll remember what I said, that we've all been ejected from the presence of God because of our disobedience to the word of God. And so what is the cross? What is the cross? But the moment when God forgives us through the atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins. If sin, disobedience to God is what God has ejected from his presence, then an atonement for sins is necessary to bring us back into his presence. And so ultimately, the bringing of the kingdom and the inauguration of the new creation that you get to participate in the presence of God happens at the cross and in the resurrection. Because that's where sins are atoned for and eternal life is brought forth through Jesus' resurrection. 
And for those of you who repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can count yourself as part of this new creation. So in asking, don't you understand yet, Jesus is also saying, don't you want to be part of the new creation? Repent of your sins, trust in my death, believe in my resurrection, and you will be part of the new world that already starts to taste the presence of God and fellowship with one another. But beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of your culture that would try to dilute the teachings of Jesus for some false gospel. Now, why does any of this matter? <laughs> why does any of this matter? Number one, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. We've got to get Jesus right. We've got to get Jesus right. So I commend this church for preaching the Word of God every week. When you come in here and the Word of God is preached, listen carefully because you're learning about God from God. Whereas the other six and a half days a week, the influences of the culture are just blowing through your life and influencing you maybe in ways you don't know. Beware the leaven of your culture and of the world. Get your understanding of God, of Jesus, of yourself, of history, of theology, of the beginning, of the end, from the scriptures. And number two, number two, the reason this matters is because looking back at Israel's history, understanding what God did in the Exodus, the exile, Ezekiel's great vision, and Jesus here puts you in a story, doesn't it? It gives you a philosophy of history. The third word that kills all sermons, philosophy. <laughs> a philosophy of history. Listen, you need a philosophy of history. Everybody understands themselves in a particular story. This is the way we're created, by being creatures who live in time, we understand stories. And so all of us have a story, a larger story that we understand we place ourselves into. For some of you, it's your family story, the American story, the Western story, there's some kind of larger narrative that you need in order to orient yourself so that you can know where are we and where are we going? And what's the point of life? Why should I get out of bed in the morning? It's those larger narratives that orient us. And what this does is it puts you in God's story, God's narrative that says what God has been doing since the Exodus and even before through the time of Ezekiel into the time of Jesus is an understanding of God's purposes for the ages that are shifted with Jesus. Not at the Enlightenment, not at the election, but with Jesus. History changes. And you can be a part of this new trajectory of where God is going to an ultimately, truly, fully new creation, new Eden. And you're in that story. You're in that story. You're in that new creation, that new world with fellowship with God and one another when you have faith in Jesus Christ. But what's the alternative? The alternative is this. And I was sharing this little bit of a message with some teenagers recently, and they were resonating with this. Here's the alternative. The story that we are told through the cultural influences around us, television, movies, magazines, books, uh, the general ethos, is that God is dead, which means there is no God, and there is no story, and there will be no end. In other words, we come from nothing, we are temporarily animated, atoms and molecules that are animated with consciousness for a moment, and then we go back to nothing. From nothing and to nothing means life is worth nothing. The meaning of life is nothing. Why should I get out of bed in the morning? Why should I care about goodness, truth, 
beauty, justice, or anything if we come from nothing and we go from nothing, from the abyss and back to the abyss. One philosopher said, life is no more than a match struck in the dark and blown out again. That's the alternative. The alternative to understanding the story of God creating history, using history, with a goal towards history, and Jesus and you are in the middle of history, is one option. Nothing, something, nothing is the other option. And that's why depression, drug use, loneliness, boredom, seeking banal entertainment to just satisfy our minds for the moment is so common in our time. Because we've told generation after generation, it all means nothing. So there's nothing else to do but do what? Laugh at it. Just, just laugh at it. Be entertained. In the light, in the dark now, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. Someone once said. But Jesus says, beware that leaven. Oh, beware that leaven. Beware that leaven. Instead, understand. Have ears to hear. See what I'm talking about. When I feed 5,000, there are 12 baskets left over. Think about that. When I feed 4,000, there are seven baskets left over. There's a new age, the dawn of a new world, where desolate places are turned back into the Garden of Eden. And for all who trust and believe in my name, enter into the kingdom of God and experience that Edenic-like creation already right now because they'd have genuine fellowship with God, genuine fellowship with each other, the forgiveness of sins, and the promise of eternal life. That's a different story. That's Jesus' story, and that's what he wants you to understand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pause, we give you thanks, we give you praise, for you are good. You are a good teacher. You make us think. And I pray now that you would take your word and write it on our hearts that we would be careful of the leavening influences all around us, but especially we would understand you from your word. We would think carefully, think deeply about the meaning of history, where we are, and how you're leading it to a new creation, for which we give you thanks, we give you praise in your name. Amen and amen.